This sermon, Jesus, the Savior Just as God Promised, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, July 10th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and if you would also stand with me, please, as we read God's Word together. Acts chapter 13. Don't lock your knees on this one. We're going to be here for just a few minutes. Let's read God's word together. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if anyone or if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took About 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, and of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whom, whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Jesus executed. And when they had carried out all that is written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people, and we bring you the good news that God has promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to corruption, He spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid in his father, laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, 
forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul of Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region but the Jews inside of the devout women and high standing, uh, women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Jesus, you shed your blood for us, and your body was broken for us. And so we remembered that this morning together. Let the taste of the bread, the lingering flavor of the juice, remind us throughout the preached word that you died for us. Let the effect, Jesus, let the effect of what you've done so captivate our hearts that we would turn from whatever our gaze has been on other than you, turn our gaze back to you. Holy Spirit, magnify Jesus to the glory of the Father. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. What have you been longing for? What have you been longing for? What have you been needing lately? This coming Friday, my family will be at the memorial service of our grandson, Everett. That's a list of things I've been longing for and needing as we head towards that. That's just that one thing. I also have a, an idolatrous heart that dogs me every day. I could look at, my, look at my history on the internet. You'll find out. There's things that I want. There's things that I long for. There's things that I think I need. But we're going to discover in today's text that we have been longing for things only what Jesus can provide. We're longing for something that only Jesus can can provide, and God has sent him just as he promised. What have you been longing for? Jesus is the answer to your deepest longings. They may be misplaced longings and desires, but you're going to find in the end that which you hoped for is only found finally in Christ. 
Sometimes when we approach the scriptures, we, we begin with text and we're wondering, wow, that, that is not the way to start the preaching of the good news. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and his companions are now in the synagogue. And at the beginning of the narrative, we hear in the second sentence of verse 13, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Why is the text there? Why does Luke include that statement? It's the second time he's clued us in that John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, he's Barnabas' cousin, if we look at the other scriptures. It's a man who joined them in the mission. We find out in this text, he leaves them in the mission. Now, it sounds simple. In this text, it sounds simple. But if you go to chapter 15, you're going to find out his departure is not just a normal departure. When you discover what's happened with John, John has abandoned them, is the sense of the text. John has bailed on them. We have a disappointing desertion right at the beginning of this section. Our opening narrative, Luke, includes a simple sentence that we've just read. This is more than a simple change in the team. It's not like, well, now the team is no longer going to have John on it. Acts 15 says it's worse. There's an abandonment, and the team is affected. A sanctified imagination allows us to consider this. Paul and Barnabas' relationship is also likely being affected already at the beginning of their mission together. We can only imagine that it's still affecting the rest of the team as well, feeling the sting of a brewing conflict is right here at the beginning, and we're going to find in next weeks and the following weeks that are coming, difficulty is going to continue to plague the furtherance of the gospel in these men's lives. What are you longing for? Is it difficulty? It's going to plague us until we finally see Jesus face to face. But the narrative goes on. And for now, the team remains unified and, from what we know in the text, joyfully moving forward in the mission. We find in verse 15, while in Antioch, Pisidia, another town named Antioch, Pisidia, different location uh, in their trip, they went on to a synagogue. And while in attendance, there extended no ordinary invitation to offer, quote, any word of encouragement for the people. On its face, this was a common practice in the synagogue. There was a rabbi present. They would turn and say, hey, Derek, Rabbi Derek today, do you have a word of encouragement for us? They have no clue what's about to happen. So many words. I can imagine that Paul and Barnabas kind of look at one another, and, Paul, and Paul's like, well, do we have any word of encouragement? You bet we do. In verse 17, verse 17, well, 16, Paul stands up and motioning with his hand. That just feels like a dramatic moment. Paul stands, motions with his hands. He says, listen to what I'm about to say. You know, the hearers of what Paul is about to say are very familiar with every point except for the last one. They're intimately aware. They have heard it ever since they were knee-high to a private eye. Boy, that dated me. He's going to mention things from their history, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that. We got that. We, yeah, I remember that. Some of them in the room are very educated. They have maybe told this same version in a way of the history, but something radically is going on that's different, and they are going to find out shortly. They, in a sense, knew their history. But in the inspired word of God, we have Paul's self-described uh, picture of the message of salvation. This was described a little bit later, Paul's own words about what he's going to describe this as. And it's recorded. And Paul, now under the power of the Spirit, remember Paul will say to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness. I didn't come to you in wise words. I didn't come to you in a crafty speech to convince you of something. No, it's going to be the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is at work in what Paul is saying. You and I have heard what the Spirit now speaks through Paul. And now they know 
this as well. They did know their history, but now they're about to hear Paul recount their history with divine precision for this moment, for their need to hear the saving message of Christ. They thought they knew their history, but Paul is going to reveal to them they do not know their history, and they certainly do not know the trajectory of their history because it is God's history in the end. They are really blind to where their history was taking them. Their history was taking them to verse 23, the coming of Jesus the Christ. A brief consideration of the text reveals the flow through this. One of the commentators so helpfully points this out. He's saying that every statement from 17 to 22, the subject of the sentence is God. God chose, verse 17. 18, God puts in them. 19, God gave them the land. God gave them judges. God removes Saul, raises up David to be their king. God, 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 God. And now shockingly, the culminating point, God brings them a Savior just as he promised. Now for you and I, that may be familiar. It's like, of course, this is coming. You're in a church, we're going to hear about Jesus. This is a shock to them. In their mind, they're still waiting and longing for the Savior. And Paul tells their story and says, the promised one has come. And this is going to rock their world. Verse 23, God brings them a Savior just as he promised. Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, is the point of their history. It is the trajectory of their history. Blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10 came to believe this. And in the narrative of Mark, it says, and now he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Blind Bartimaeus, realizing his history, hearing of Jesus and a Savior's going to come in the King David's lineage, calls out to his Savior, have mercy on me. Paul takes them step by step to the one who the Father had promised his Son, his Messiah, his Savior, his promised one, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. They may have known some of their history, but they had no idea that their history, and actually all of history for that matter, was taking them to this one person, God's Son, King Jesus. This was their problem. They were blind to who the Savior was. From the beginning, in the middle, to the end, they were blind. From Abraham, and now to Jesus. Their whole history's been pointed to Jesus. All of the prophets have been telling them, according to the text, even from Adam and Eve's shame being covered in the garden after their sin, to this very moment, where they sit in this synagogue, and actually, for you and I, where we sit in this room, hearing this message of Jesus, your history, my history, is also being peeled back and revealed. It's been pointing to Christ and Him alone. Do you know your history? Are you aware that all of it has been pointing to Christ, that has been pointing you to Christ. Your history is God's history as well. It belongs to him, and he has ordained it to every single point that Jesus, just as he promised. Your history, my history, our history, together even as a local church. I love that Tim and Kathy's names were brought up as they sacrificed whatever they were doing and planted this church. All of that history, all of those years, including the McLeods still present with us, faithfully sitting probably in the same seat they've been sitting in for years. There's a little plaque in front of Scott where he sits. I'm sure Teresa's like, Scott, are we going to sit somewhere else? Scott's like, nope, this is ours. We paid for this seat. <laughs> no, all of that rich history. To Derek, the guy from Phoenix being brought down, joining this church. The sorrow, the disappointments, the valleys of death, the heights of exhilaration, 
the celebrations, the gravesides, the weddings, the weakness, the panic, the happiness, the community groups, the parenting, the barbecues, the childhood, the hurt, and the healing, the singing, and the sobbing, the baptisms, the communion, the nights of darkness, the joys in the morning, the friendships, the job, when we were young, now that we're old, I'm joining all the gray hairs on that one. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All of it, all of it is God's history right now and will one day culminate ultimately in the final exaltation of Christ in our hearts and minds. When Philippians 2, 9 says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that everyone, everyone, even those that do not believe, everyone will bow the knee in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is the Lord King, the glory, excuse me, the glory of God, the Father, some unto salvation, some unto judgment. But everyone is finally going to see their history is God's history. Rulers of the synagogue asked if any one of you have an encouraging word for these people. You bet we do. My encouraging word is Jesus. It's God's history. It's God's story. And his word is declaring that it's Jesus just as he promised. But verse 26, look there with me if you would. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham. What a beautiful summary of what he has just said in all of their history. Those among you who fear God, you Gentiles that are near this, to us has been sent the message of salvation. But look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled those prophets by killing Jesus. You would think at this point of the narrative, it would be, and Jesus has been preached, and they finally saw it. And then it was all roses after that. Now, in fact, the declaring of the gospel includes the shocking message that the Savior is killed. In fact, what makes him the Savior is the fact that he's killed. Church, I think it's right to say this. This is an implication of the text, but it is clearly being given to us, the church, the local church. We have been given this message that has been sent by God, this message of salvation, the grace of God for the local church, or the grace of God at work in the local church is that we've been given this message of the grace of God. In verses 27 through 35, Paul goes on to declare in more detail that this message of salvation, it is Jesus. And more pointedly, it's Jesus. It's Jesus' death. And it's his resurrection. And now more clearly we find in verse 23, God has brought us a Savior. And shockingly, the Savior will die. But he will raise again. Earlier we saw that we were blind to God's history. Now we painfully see that we are radically blind to who Jesus is to the point that we would even kill him. Look, I agree with the history you just gave about me and my life. You can tell me my history. But to say that my history points to Jesus they did not see it, even though explicitly told even ahead of time by the prophets. The prophets that they heard every Sabbath. Isaiah 53 and 12, likely, often, ringing loud in the room that the Lamb would bear the sins of many on himself and die. And they miss it. Jesus, the Lamb, they do not see him. Verses 24 through 25, if you'd look back to that just briefly. 24 through 25, 
I skipped over this before I got to 26 for a reason. It says, John the Baptist preached to the people of Israel. And when John got to the end of his course, what a gracious way for Luke to describe the end of John who was beheaded. John quotes what is recorded in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist quotes what is in the Gospel of John. Now there is one coming after me whose sandals, whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Two verses later, John 1, 27. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They killed the promised one, but God raised him from the dead, from the tomb. The Lamb of God raises to life. And so now what we have is these three things. Jesus' death and resurrection is the glorious fulfillment of God's promise. That actually is a surprise in the text. I thought the promise was Jesus. It is. But verse 32, you can draw the arrow, circle 23, draw it down to 32 and circle that. It's okay. It's not blasphemy to draw lines in your Bible. Circle it. We bring to you good news that God has promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us as children by raising Jesus. Who is fulfilled coming Savior dies and is fulfilled in his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection is the glorious fulfillment of God's promise but is also the very means by which they will be forgiven and that we will be forgiven. It's going to go on this beautiful, beautiful picture in 32. Draw another line sharpened over to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. His death and resurrection, a glorious fulfillment of his promise. His death and resurrection, the very means by which we are now forgiven. And now keep drawing the line. Jesus' death and resurrection is now how we're freed in the very next couple of verses. Verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is freed. Listen to the qualifying statement. Freed from everything which could not free you. It's part of the law. Whatever the law said to anybody about what you had to do to gain favor and access to God cannot be the way in. That's what the scriptures will say. I grew up hearing all the time, Jesus has set you free. And I'll bet if you asked me just a few days ago, what has Jesus set you free from, Tom? I would like immediately, before you could even finish or take in the next breath to clarify your question, because normally I'll interrupt people, ask my wife, Tom, Tom, what has Jesus set you free from? I would say, my sin. And actually what the text is saying, no, it's not what he set us free from. He set us free from the righteous requirements of the law. The law says, do this, don't do this. And I discover I cannot do and undo any of it. I discover that I fail at every point of the law. I am set free from my sin, but I'm set free from that which has bound me. The law has that amazing way to reveal to us you've been trying to earn your way in and you cannot earn your way in. It's okay to believe in Christ, but you cannot believe in Christ and try to earn your way in. You're set free, and this is their biggest struggle, is they are trying to be saved by obeying the law. And I believe this is why they were blind to the fact that Christ is the Lamb of God who obeyed perfectly. And if they would only believe in him, his righteousness would be given to them. Jesus has set us free, but it set us free from the law. Faith alone is explicit in the text. It will go on and make the statement. It drives home the fact that you cannot be saved. You're not free. You're not free. You're not free, except only in Christ. You are free. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law. Years ago, I have a friend. His name is Donnie. And 
he, his kids are all grown up and they'll have kids of their own now. I think it's the case with all my friends. But anyway, Donnie told me a story at first. It was just, I was just gripped by it and actually scared to death because when he told me I had little ones. Donnie's kids at that point were grown up and out of the house already. He said, my son came to me the other day and he said, he said, Dad, do you believe, you really believe that there's hell and that if a person doesn't believe in Christ, that they'll go there? And he said, son, I, I do believe that there's hell. If you don't believe in Christ, you will go there. And his son charged him and challenged him and said, well, then shame on you because you never told me. And I, I just privately, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, have I told my kids about hell? And that's a weird place for a parent to be. Donnie was honest, and he said back to his son, I think this is a gracious response to an arrogant challenge of him. He said, son, maybe, maybe I didn't. But now that you know, what are you going to do? And I remember tears just welling up in Donnie's eyes. I said, Donnie, I, I'm sure you told him of hell. He goes, Tom, I, I try to remember if I didn't, he goes, I'm sure I did as well. But in that moment, my son needed to know. And we know, you know, from our text today, we actually, in the middle of the preaching of the gospel, we have this strangely inserted warning. We're going to be freed. We're going to be freed from the law. Beware, therefore, lest what is also said by the prophets would come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Believe in Christ is the point. Believe in Christ or perish. They scoffed at salvation without the law. Scoffing at salvation in Jesus alone, through faith alone, apart from the law, was their belief. Their scoffing also wasn't a general reje rejection. It was specific. The greatest single struggle with accepting the good news of salvation in Jesus isn't always that we don't believe who he is. It's that believing in him is that we cannot add our effort or works or merit to the gospel. Paul is essentially saying also a little bit later he's gonna write back to the Galatians this same people. Faith in Jesus plus the law equals no gospel at all. Read Galatians is the assignment from the text today. For me, if I am freed and freed from the law and yet it is possible that I'll scoff at it, what's my problem? My problem is I will be like the Galatians, so quickly bewitched into believing that I can add my effort to the gospel and in this presentation to this Jewish primary audience is faith in Christ alone saves. And if you add anything to it, it is no salvation at all. Now verse 41 starts with look. Remember it was listen, now it's look. We have that second imperative. So you and I need to consider a deeper look on this and ask yourself, and I ask myself the same question, are we scoffing in unbelief at the Savior? I want to be careful with my qualifying answer to this. If you and I approach the message of Jesus, you know, I, I wonder about this Jesus. You know, give me some time to think about it. I think the scoffing's already begun. Our history reveals we need a Savior. You know it. But what might be a surprise is that you don't know the very means of your salvation is the person of Christ. So when you hear of him, don't scoff at the message and immediately look away or immediately begin to come up with a way that it's not him. I would encourage you to investigate it further. Blind Bartimaeus 
He only hears a little bit of Jesus coming his way. He can't even see him. He doesn't even know what he looks like. So he can't say he's appealing to him. It's very likely he's never even heard his voice. But he knows that this man that can heal is on his way. And he knows the very means of him finding his blindness removed is found in this person of Jesus. And he is willing to believe already as the Lord goes on ahead in his heart and says, Jesus, son of David. The man's willing to believe. Let the Lord work in you this morning on this question. Have you been scoffing at the Savior, questioning the Savior, and wondering about him even to the point to where you might not even believe? You would turn away from Christ. My appeal is that you would not turn away, that you would learn and know more of him. Maybe another way to honestly ask this is, do you really believe your sins need to be forgiven? You may have heard this your whole life. If you grew up in a family in this church, I know you've heard this. Your sins do need to be forgiven. You were taught even at an early age, son, what you did, your sister, you need to go apologize. Now, honey, you need to forgive him. You know, in a sense, what forgiveness is. I know you know it. You've seen it and you've witnessed it. This is an amazing forgiveness. Do you see that your sins need to be forgiven before a holy God? And you cannot undo that. You personally cannot convince a holy God that you can get into heaven. You will surely perish. But if you go to God and you say, God, forgive me, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to show you the Savior just as he promised. You may want something that's more valuable than Jesus. The scriptures are telling you there is nothing more valuable. Of all your history, of all you've accumulated and all that you desire, Christ is the one that you need. And so revival begins in verse 43. Revival sparks in the hearts of some Jews and God-fearing Greeks in verse 43. And after the meeting in the synagogue, they broke up many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. They begged them in verse 42, they begged them to come back and to speak of him again. Revival spreads into their hearts. But also see what's happening. The revival spreads throughout the whole city. Verse 44, then the church gathers, the, the, I'll just read it, the next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The revival begins. Now, at this point, I'm expecting another part of the, of the narrative to just say, and isn't this amazing? 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you know what it actually does? It goes right back into the warning in a harsher way, a more needed way. Immediately, as revival begins to spread, rejection surges forward all the more. Jealousy motivated Contradiction of the gospel begins to be passed around among the Jews that are hearing. They're sitting in the synagogue. Paul preaches the gospel faithfully, tells them that they need a savior, and immediately begin to contradict them. Now as we see what Paul warns about in verse 40, the prophet's words are already coming true. God is doing a work right before their eyes, and some of them are already hating it and begin to contradict every word of it. Paul said Jesus is the Savior, the promised one. Paul said Jesus has been risen. Jesus said, I mean, Paul says Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Paul says Jesus frees us from the law. And at every point of the way, they've done exactly what we have over here in verses 27 and 28. No, he isn't. To the point of where they would kill him all the more. And we know that the text takes us on at the end. They are so disgusted by what they're hearing, they're going to drive these men out of town. In the text are two words that's helpful for us to see in their rejection of the gospel. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken reviling him. 
study that a little bit. Go to your NASB blaspheming hymn. When I first read this, I thought they were reviling Paul. No, actually what the text is saying, they're reviling Jesus again. They're blaspheming Jesus again. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Humorously, I used the word blasphemy earlier, and I'm actually right now wondering if I should have used it. I think it should be reserved for what we have in the text. Blasphemy is essentially being in lockstep with Satan as their father. All the way back to Genesis 3.1. Did God actually say? Paul stands and clearly presents the gospel to them. And they immediately say, did, did God actually say that? Contradict Paul. And the result is they blaspheme the Savior. They contradict it all. He is not God's promised one. He is dead and rotting in the grave. He cannot forgive our sin. And he cannot do this by setting one free from the law. They reviled Jesus. And so in verse 46, they thrust, is the other word, they thrust the word of God aside. They push it aside. Verse 50, they stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out. So verse 51, we see this strange response of the gospel. So Christ is scoffed at. Christ is reviled and blasphemed. And they thrust aside this good news of salvation. And they persecute those that are preaching this and drive them out of town, literally drive them out of town. There's an implication of the shift into verse 51 that we'll talk about. They shook the dust from their feet against them. You know what's amazing is it took the people to physically drive them out of town for the disciples to leave. Their desire is that the people would hear the message. These guys aren't packing up and leaving. They've been driven out. And in them being driven out, they do something that's curious to us. I, I've never stood outside in a conflict with my wife and said, well, that's it. I'm shaking the dust off my feet against you. Just weird. But to them, it was not weird. You know what they're really doing? It was a sign, and it was a serious sign. God's judgment was on the people for their thrusting aside of the message of Jesus. God's judgment was on them. So the disciples are essentially saying, you need to hear of the Savior. And it's as if they're standing outside the city, and that is actually against their will. And they're like, you are under God's judgment. You need the Savior. You're under his judgment. You need the Savior. There's also a second part to them shaking the dust off their feet. They have to, and you and I have to, not be part of the reviling of Christ and the Word. How many times have we been party to a friend or a neighbor or something in social media, wherever it is, where they're just railing against this stupid message of the Christians? Got some atheists in there railing against God's word. He didn't say that. That's made up by men. And we just sit there and we just entertain the thing and we just keep going on. They've been driven out of the city. They're appealing that they would believe in Christ, but they're saying, we're not going to be party to your reviling of this. So removing the dust of their feet, saying, we're not going to be with you in that. You know the joy is, the implication of the text? There's still a church left in town. Believers believe, and they're not shoved out of town. Missionaries are chased out. <laughs> Preachers are going to rise up, keep preaching Jesus to these people. And I'll bet, because we know the pattern of Scripture, some of the very people standing on the side of the road like Saul himself did, holding the coats of the persecutors, are going to believe in Christ. Do you and I have such a high view of Jesus and the Word of God that we are willing to finally make it clear that the individuals around us are facing God's judgment? Are we going to remind our kids 
They need to believe in Christ or they'll perish. The answer is yes. Do our friends need to know? It's not just an ongoing argument or a journey that we're walking together and I'm a believer and I'm hanging out with you. You're not a believer, but hey, we're in this together. At some point, they need to know they're under God's judgment. They have to know. They have to know. Don't leave them. Let them drive you out if they have to. Stay with them. Keep telling them of the Savior. Don't give up on your husband. Don't give up on your wife. Don't give up on any family member. Don't give up on that neighbor that's so mad at you because your trailer keeps getting into his yard or your leaves keep falling in his backyard. Don't give up on them. They need Jesus. They revile him. They need to know that you can't be part of that. Maybe another way to consider this is have we personally reviled Jesus? Have we, or are we, reviling Jesus? The songwriter pins these words. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You know, my testimony is I was a good religious kid, mostly. And then by God's grace, I was saved. But it was years later that I understood, looking back, that my silence as a young man in my family, and my pretending in my family, you know, my years uh, after I grew up and I'm now at work and I'm acting like I'm a believer, hanging out with my friends at work. When I hear the words, hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, did I ever outwardly say, Jesus is not the Savior? No, I don't think I ever did. But just like I said, I never tried drugs. I should probably be careful on that one. But I can tell you what my heart was saying. There is no way he's the Savior. I'm not going to believe that for a second. Point is, as believers, we see how grievous our sins really were, or when we see how grievous our sins really were, and how our voices actually did call out among the scoffers and join them in their sin. And when we see that it it was the case, and now find out that our sins have been forgiven by Christ, have been forgiven by Jesus, becomes all the more precious to us. He did bear my sins on his body, and he's precious all the more to me. He did die and was raised again for me, and it is all the more beautiful to me. We are forgiven. We're free. And now we see the beauty of the Lamb of God, Jesus. He bore it all. I bear it no more. Brett, if you could join me. The band. I'm going to edit on the fly. We have been longing and needing something that only Jesus can provide. And God has sent him just as he promised. I would like to do something with you with this narrative that may feel awkward at first, but is worth our time. If you would go, just take your finger or your pen, whatever you want to do, go to verse 32. Sometimes we forget brief passages that get buried in a volume of the narrative. And I want to remind us of these passages. There's four of them. I'd like to draw our attention to these four verses. Verse 32. And we bring you good news. just as God promised. Verse, that was 32, verse 42. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them again the next Sabbath. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy 
with the Holy Spirit. The accumulative effect of these four verses, the accumulative effect of, on them, all that they had witnessed and heard, this good news of Jesus, they essentially were saying, tell me that old, old story of Jesus again. They worshiped Jesus, rejoicing and glorifying in the message of Jesus. They believed in Jesus, and they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. You know, using our sanctified, our imaginations as well, the saints rejoice. Jesus is no longer reviled in heaven. He's glorified. And I can imagine in heaven, all of heaven, watching all that's going on in this scene, reacting in every scene, the gasping, the cheering, the hoping, the longing from heaven, cheering is from their bleachers, beholding what's going on. The noise of heaven would have got louder and louder and louder and louder through the text as person after person after person believed what they said, Jesus is the Savior. Revelation 5, 13 through 14. When those in heaven are cheering, imagine the moment that they sense him come in behind them who's been watching all along. And they behold the Lamb of God and they fall on golden streets at Jesus' feet and they worship him. Revelation 5, 13 And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. 